please be advised that the content in the Great Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Great Tales, the series podcast. Today from the Great Tales Sydney Volume 1 book, To Be or Not To Be, The Story of Beatrice Miles. She was a poor little rich girl put in an asylum who escaped and lived her life on the streets. But what was the real story behind Beatrice Miles, the bohemian, described as Sydney's iconic eccentric, who could quote any passage from Shakespeare for money? Have you noticed there's a shortage of eccentrics? Maybe they're just uh, not as obvious anymore. Uh, I don't know. They used to be. I mean, you used to see them around the place, and Sydney certainly had its share of which bee was one. Marilyn. Do you remember Marilyn? I do, yes. She was so sweet and lovely, and she'd pose with people, you know, for photos. Yeah. There was rock and roll. George. George. George used to drive up and down Queen Street there in his FJ. But Bee was the eccentric of Sydney. She was. They had a few. They had Yabba, the bloke who used to sit at the cricket and football and barrack, or abuse, depending on who was uh, in the field at the time. <laughs> They had Arthur Stace, who we have a story oh, on, yes. uh, Bless who Arthur. was Mr Eternity, yeah. who rode Eternity all over the footpaths and wherever he could find a spot. His story's in this book as well. He was a great character. He was. But Beatrice, I have found, going around talking to people about our books, that the number of people who know of her and the number of people who knew her, especially if blokes were taxi drivers, is remarkable. Yeah, well, you still find a lot of people today say they remember her. Remember that lady told us a story about how she was out with her mother shopping in Sydney. She was only a young girl, and they ran into B, and B said to her, tie my shoelaces up, and her mother scurried her away as quickly as she could because B was, you know, a little yeah. unkempt. Yeah, and the thing about B and, and cab drivers was that while she used public transport and cabs, she felt like she didn't have to pay for them, so yeah. she didn't. Yeah. And they used to see her coming and try and bolt, but she'd often get them. But anyway, let me tell you how Bee became yes. Bee as she is. So this is not really a poor little rich girl tale, and it's not really a rebel without a cause tale, because Bee's home situation, the nature and the nurturing, and the illness she caught as a young woman really contributed to her life. So Bee came from money. She was from a very well-to-do family from the upper North Shore suburb of St Ives. Yep. And she was one of five children. She attended the privileged girls' school, Abbotsley. And at school, she was described as athletic, intelligent, and free-spirited. As a teenager, she was saddled with brains and she graduated with honours in English at school and won a place to study medicine at Sydney Uni in 1920. So that's quite radical. It sure is. So her parents would have been delighted. She changed her degree, actually, from medicine to English literature and she loved her literature. But regardless of the qualification, she was bright, shiny and her future was looking good. But then B was struck down with a virus that was epidemic worldwide between 1917 and 1928. Encephalitis lethargica. Its cause and how B caught it is somewhat unknown, but it basically was a high fever, yeah. lethargy, slow physical and mental response, and sometimes patients actually went into a coma. It caused behavioural changes, including psychosis, and B was acutely affected. She had blurred vision, she went into a phase of deep sleep, and she was lucky to survive. But when she returned to good health, she was different. She was a different person. She was hyperactive, she was wildly unconservative, and it was a very conservative time. We're talking the 1920s here. Mm. And she was inappropriate. And she'd do strange things, like she'd take to the streets on a men's bicycle, which was a little bit radical in itself in those days, and she'd wear a ball gown and a big wide brim hat and she'd blow a police whistle and she'd play the piano any time of the day or night. Infuriating her father, she'd express her views on free love, which of course in those times was somewhat taboo. Especially from a man uh, of his position, from someone in his family. Exactly. Uh, to be doing that. So um, what else did she do? 
Well, a forensic psychiatrist by the name of Robert Kaplan said she was always unconventional, though. When she was 12, she wore a no-conscription badge to school during the World War I referendum. Yep. And this is a 12-year-old. Yeah. I mean, I was probably thinking, what's for dinner? <laughs> but she was clearly opinionated. She was outraged to be marked down in an essay describing Gallipoli as a strategic blunder rather than a wonderful war effort. So she was an interesting young girl. Yeah, she was. And that was uh, one of the big issues of the time, of course, two conscription votes that the country had. And for her to be involved in that at the age of 12 and to fairly correctly sum the situation up by saying it was a blunder, mm. it was a huge blunder. Yeah. But, of course, they were trying to raise more men to go to World War One, and yeah. uh, were reluctant to say that or admit it. So clearly this was going to have an effect on her father and his reactions. What did he do? Oh, absolutely. I think it's fair to say he was mortified and ashamed by her. He was a right-wing accountant by the name of William Miles, and he had his daughter institutionalised in 1923 at the Glazeville Hospital for the Insane. Some of our podcasts have talked about mental institutions and the inappropriate names of the era, so it was a Gladesville Hospital for the Insane. And this was a man who rallied against the increase in bad teeth, insanity, Jewish and feminine influences, the decline in family life and decreasing parental control. But he places his free-spirited daughter with societies unbalanced and violent and ill. And she shifted between a number of them. So she started off at Glazeville, she went to Kenmore and Callan Park. Horrendous and frightening time, you can imagine, for her. It must have been. It was a sad state of affairs and mental institutions in the 20s were pretty raw and rough. And you could be admitted for something as treatable as depression to criminal insanity. There was overcrowding, there was filth, there was shock treatment, the whole bit. And here's this young girl in there who's come from... You'd have to say privilege. Exactly, to being institutionalised. So she was in there from the age of 21 to 25. So in 1925, when she was 23 years old, her mum, Maria, died. Her mum was 49. Now, we don't really know of what Maria died. She died at her residence, so maybe an illness, but we don't know how her mother felt about bees and termin either, but I suspect the father ran the house. Yeah. When she was in these institutions, did she ever try to get out? Oh, yeah. She tried several breakouts, but always found herself back behind the walls. In one attempt, she made her way as far as Toowoomba and stayed with a friend there. And the really interesting thing about that was while she was there, she sought examination from three independent doctors to her state of mind. And the verdicts were, Dr. MacDonald said, abnormal but not insane and not fit to be in a mental hospital. Dr. Freshney wrote, peculiar but not insane. And Dr. Whittaker, a nerve specialist, observed her for a week and said, certainly not insane. But nevertheless, she was recaptured, so to speak, and returned to the asylum. I mean, that's horrific, isn't it? And why? It must have been her father's influence. Yeah, it would have to have been your thought. And maybe the reaction from just ordinary people who she had somehow insulted, yeah. upset. The authorities acted on complaints. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. It was interesting observations from the doctors that she wasn't insane because not long after that, she made the front page of Smith's Weekly, a newspaper in Sydney. Yeah, 1927. Well, she obviously still had friends who were rallying for her because that front page story campaigned in getting her out and they succeeded and she was released. But her father washed his hands of her then. He gave her a small allowance that she'd inherited from her grandmother and told the police it was their job to pick her up if she was unruly and that was it. So Bee was free and with her eccentric personality shaped a bit by illness and the insufferable conditions she just came from, Sydney was now her playground. (laughs) (laughs) And she went to King's Cross, I understand. She was very at home at King's Cross in the 1920s. Good surprise. (laughs) Because it was sort of a bohemian lifestyle there. It was eccentric. It's where the artists and the intellectuals and the sexually tolerant and rebels gathered and Bee was right at home there. So be yourself, be in Sydney. And she was sort of removed from censure and criticism there, thanks to the Smith's Weekly 
profile as well. She actually had a bit of a, a profile. So this is when her love of literature came to the fore. She used to plant herself outside the Mitchell Library in Macquarie Street, which is a state library, yep. and recite Shakespeare for no more than six pence or a couple of shillings, she'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from the bard, she would refuse to recite any English poetry. They were washed out words and a feet product of a worn out land and not fit for Australians. She was very patriotic. <laughs> the reason she was outside the library, of course, was she became an avid reader, something that was developed from her childhood. Yeah, well, she was, and that's probably why she wanted to do the degree in literature. But she used to read several books a week until she was banned from the library in the 1950s. Now, I tried to find out why, but they couldn't tell me. There was no record of why she was banned. So I suspect she was probably rowdy and noisy in yeah. there, which is a great shame. Yeah. By contrast, she wasn't a big fan of the police which won't surprise anyone. And they all cop regular abuse from her when the opportunity presented the itself. The police did. Yes. Okay. She also wasn't much of a fashionista, our bee. She often wore a green tennis hat, tennis shoes, a drab coat, and often barefoot as well. So for a lady with an allowance, and she was you know, a reasonably well-off woman, yeah. she didn't spend it on clothes, movie tickets, taxis, bus fares. But as you said earlier, it didn't stop her from using the service. And if taxi drivers wouldn't take her, she'd damage the vehicle. Yeah. They saw her coming, as I mentioned before, and tried mm. to bolt, but often didn't get away. She's kind of odd because she was very community-focused and very kind as well. She must have just forgotten these men are earning a living. Maybe Elise would just think she thought that should be free for everyone. Yeah. Didn't have to pay to go from A to B in a car that someone owns and puts petrol in. And... <laughs> so she'd jump on the running board, and if they didn't take off and take her where she wanted to, she'd dent the door. <laughs> but anyway, as a result, B had plenty of days in court, but she wasn't really phased by jail time. We wouldn't be after asylum no. life. Later on in life, when she was informed of her 200 convictions, she told the magistrate, 80 I deserved, but 120 were unfair and malicious. <laughs> so we're getting sort of into the 30s now, the 1930s, mm. when times were tough for everybody in Australia during yeah. the Depression. Did it ever affect Bee to the point where she ended up actually on the streets? Yeah, it did. I mean, she still had that inheritance, a little bit of pay that she got each week. Yep. And she did the street recitals, but she began to live on the streets. And she wasn't alone, as she said. There were a lot of people in the 30s who were living on the streets and not just men. There was a lot of homeless women and younger people. And according to the Sydney's YWCA hostel, it showed an increased patronage of women escaping domestic violence or suffering mental illness as well. And a lot of that was exacerbated by the war and depression, of course. So B was said to have mostly have dosed I'm in the lingo, dossed down in Stormwater Canal beside Rush Cutters That's Bay right. Park. It's amazing when you consider what that must have been like, B and lots of other people dossing down in that park, mm. which is now right beside the Yacht Club, <laughs> is where some of the wealthiest people in Sydney hang about. Probably yeah. not the case in the 1930s, I wouldn't have thought. No. It's interesting, though, because she was a very smart woman. On one occasion when she went to court in 1946 to face a charge of having insufficient lawful means of support, she was found lying in the doorway of a shop. Yep. She told the local justice she had not slept in a bed for two and a half years and she had a pound which she never touched on her because then the police can't vague her. So basically they can't charge you for vagrancy. Now, I just want to tell the listeners that Chris Adams himself has been arrested for vagrancy. No, it wasn't actually arrested. It was picked up. Picked up, <laughs> yeah. So I think you should come clean now and, and tell that story before we all have a strange impression of you. Well, it was years ago and I was doing the breakfast radio program on a country radio station and I was within walking distance of the studios from where we lived. So I never used to get overly dressed. I, mean, I had a pair of shorts on and a T-shirt with a hole in it, I think, this morning, walking down to the radio station. Where is this station? In Townsville. Townsville. Beautiful Townsville. Piece of pineapple in one hand and a piece of watermelon in the other, I think. <laughs> and the police stopped because this is now about half past four in the morning. Yeah. Uh, where are you going? So I'm going to work. Oh, yeah? What do you do? I'm the breakfast announcer at 4AY. Oh, yeah. And they sort of, you know, had a chuckle behind their hands. Yeah. Here I was. They said, you got any money on you? I said, no, I'm just 
got my breakfast with me and I'm off to work. Get in the car. <laughs> so they took me down to the police station. Didn't charge me, just sat me there while they worked out what to do, I suppose, because I kept telling them, look, I'm the breakfast announcer at 4 Y. If you turn the radio on, you'll hear the station's not on because the first thing in those days you had to do when you got to work was yeah. turn the transmitter on. And so they did, and they eventually worked out what was going on, and the sales manager had to come and pick me up and take me into the station. So I know what it's like. I think it was $10 you were supposed to have on you in those days. Yeah. It didn't help you had long hair tied back, no shoes, tattered clothes. And a longish beard. I'm surprised, though, from your voice that they might have given you the benefit of the doubt <laughs> a little bit. Well, I did eventually. And, of course, you wouldn't have said anything nasty about them on air after that. No, never. Hmm. No, never. <laughs> yeah, so poor old B was smart enough to know she had to carry money and she always did. But she still obviously got picked up a lot of times yeah. if she had 200 convictions. Yeah, but she had means of support. She had 200 pounds in the bank for a fixed purpose, Which as she called it. A fair bit of money in those a days. A lot of money in those days, especially in the Depression. And she got £3 a week from her father's estate. And again, that's plenty of money to live on. And she wasn't without her friends and supporters. B had a long relationship with a man by the name of Brian Harper, which ended when she was 38 because Brian wanted to get married and she couldn't stand men who wanted to marry. <laughs> but by the 1940s, she'd formed a close relationship again. And this was with a taxi driver, yep. believe it or not, wow. named John Bainan. And he remained a lifelong friend of hers. Interesting, another little twist, another story. It's in our book where B crosses over. During the trial of eight-year-old Graham Thorne's murderer Stephen Bradley. Now, oh, yeah. you'll remember the Graham Thorne tragedy. He was a little boy whose father won the lotto. Yeah, it was the Opera House lottery uh, to raise the money to build the Opera House. They had a big lottery in New South Wales and Basil Thorne, who was Graham's father, won it and so went from overnight uh, living in a flat to being extremely wealthy. And after that happened, a young Graham was kidnapped. Mm. They didn't find his body for some time. Uh, he probably died within 24 hours of actually being kidnapped. Mm. And there was a demand, obviously, on the Thorns for money um, to release him, but it was never going to happen. Mm. So the fellow was charged and convicted. And B would sit in the gallery at his trial and call out, feed him to the sharks at Bondi. That was a very threat that the murderer, Stephen Bradley, made to Basil and his wife in order to get them to pay the ransom. But speaking of Bondi, she was a keen swimmer and she'd often take to the water at Bondi Beach and she'd wear a knife strapped to her leg for shark protection. It won't die on any shark that got poor old B for lunch. But anyway, in the later years, by the 1960s, her health had declined and she was in her 60s then. And she took up residence with the Little Sisters of the Poor. So that was a charity group run by the nuns. Yep. You can just imagine it. B told the sisters that she had no allergies that I know of, one complex, no delusions, two inhibitions, no neurosis, three phobias, no superstitions and no frustrations. <laughs> but she would not be converted. She stayed there for the last six years of her life. And Sister Benigna remembers her well and said that she was a frightening woman at first because of her size and noise. And she used to say, you know, don't you God bless me if she was addressed in that manner. <laughs> But Sister Benigna said that she was just a lovely, kind-hearted woman who just wanted to be loved. There was a chaplain who worked with that order by the name of Father Aubrey Collins who used to tell her one day, I'll get you, B. And every time he did that, she would always respond, Oh, you fool, Collins. Yes. <laughs> it was said she used to, you know, embrace the blind or the senile where she was and to hold their hand for hours on end. And she'd sit and read to them. Every pension day, B would go out with John Bainan, her taxi driver yep. friend, and they'd go for a drive and she'd always return home with a big box of sweets and fruit for the sick from her money. Yeah. And every Friday, John would come and take her to the library and they'd come back with a big bag of books that they'd share around and, and then she'd return them the following week. So she stayed with the sisters until her death from cancer, age 72, on the 3rd of December, 1973. 
And I have to tell you, B asked to see Father Aubrey Collins and asked to be baptised. Two hours later, she died and was cremated. So it's safe to say he got her in the end. <laughs> <laughs> we know very little about B's actual family, just quickly. She was one of the five children. The eldest, Helen, died at six months after birth. Constance was three years older than B. Then John came next and was one year her senior. Then Arthur followed three years after B, and Louise was the youngest, five years B's junior. We know she came in contact with her brother John a bit. He actually worked in a men's outfitter store called Peeps. Yep. Sydney Siders may remember it. Mm. She'd visit him if her allowance wasn't waiting for her at the GPO each week, so he obviously controlled that little bit of allowance. But she was banned from that store too eventually, just quietly. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine the very dignified surrounds of Peeps, Peeps. and men's outfitter with B in there making a noise. Yeah. B survived Louise, who married but died age 50, and both of her brothers, John and Arthur, survived her. Her father died in 1942 when B was age 40. No reconciliation, I believe. Okay. She was apparently a passionate patriot. She performed at the city of Sydney as Stedford, I understand, too, yeah. but wouldn't recite any English poetry, opting instead for two Australian poems, one called Belong and the other one was Corroboree to the Sun. Yeah. And look, she knew she'd be disqualified by doing so. She told the Truth newspaper that, and she was right, she was, but they gave her a certificate of merit, <laughs> just the same. So it's no surprise that at her funeral she requested native wildflowers on her coffin and the playing of three Australian classics, Advanced Australia Fair, Waltzy Matilda and everyone's favourite, Time You Can Read Down Sport. <laughs> God bless her. There'll be people out there who may know of Bee's story but not make the connection. She lived on in books and films. Kate Grenville's book Lillian's Story was inspired by Bee okay. and it was made into a film with Ruth Cracknell in the lead role. Can you just She's imagine? Terrific. Wouldn't yeah. she be terrific? Yeah. It was also a stage play by David Mitchell titled Better Known as Bee. And her portrait was actually done by Alex Robertson and entered into the 1961 Archibald Prize. Uh, mm. The B. Miles Women's Housing Scheme is also named after B, but it's not funded by her estate. Okay. She was larger than life. She was a larrikin. She was cremated and buried in Rookwood Cemetery. And the lover of literature even supervised her own epitoire on her tombstone before she died. It was from Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. It's Act 3, Scene 1, four lines that basically are an invitation to be ready to die, I believe. A very B-ish. It says... Reason thus with life, if I do lose thee, I do lose a thing that none but fools would keep. Oh. Now, I'll tell you where to find B in case you wanted to go pay your respects to her. B is in Rookwood Cemetery, Section Old General, Grave 208, and that's in Lidcombe in Sydney. Yep, and we found her reasonably easily. Yes, big grave, isn't yeah, it? A big tombstone, yeah. Yep, and I want to leave you with the vision of B, which pretty much sums up her personality. There's a photo of B sitting comfortably smoking outside a Sydney bank under a sign that reads, Gentlemen will refrain from smoking. <laughs> Veiled to a character. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please rate, review and subscribe by pressing the Follow Us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales the series, available in paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook, music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well.